on that. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been asking this question, what happens when people encounter the risen Lord, when they encounter the resurrected Jesus? And we've looked at Mary and Thomas, John and Peter, and we see how the voiceless become heralds, how doubters become worshipers, how the fearful become courageous, and how failures receive second chances. This week is a little bit different. It's one that relates to uh, the church calendar. And um, we got to confess um, my own life, and most likely for most of us, the church calendar uh, is not something that we necessarily always pay attention to. Like we do when it comes to Christmas and Easter, and that's about it, right? Um, but some of you might know that this past Thursday uh, was a Ascension Thursday. It's a day that the church would celebrate when Christ ascended into the heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And next Sunday is... There you go. Thank you. At least one of us knows, right? Pentecost Sunday. So this is, uh, this is something that our church celebrates just like we would look back at Easter Sunday. And so the question that we're asking this morning is a little bit different. It's what happens as a result of Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit? What happens as a result of these things? I want to suggest that the arrival of Jesus changed the way people interacted with God and with one another. As a result of these events, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, ascension, and the sending of the Holy Spirit, things, the fabric of the universe was changed so mightily that groups that were previously hostile, distant, desperate, were united. And they became one. They became a family. Now, some of you will know that Natasha, she designed um, a few different like icons for this series. And so this one that she designed is... Those of you online, you won't get to see this. Just in, Sorry, guys. But those of you uh, here, you will see at the very bottom this picture of these different colored dots. And they're being actually drawn together. That's the, uh, each one we've had this theme, right? You can see the lamb and the rooster. That's Peter. Peter was afraid. He rejected knowing Jesus. But then when Jesus restores him, he says, tend to my lambs, feed my sheep, Right? The arrow's meant to symbolize courage. When we had Nick Tony come and preach from Luke 24 about our, uh, on the road to Emmaus, the disciples' hearts were burning, rejoicing as Jesus opened up the scriptures to them. Jesus invited Thomas to put his hand on his wound. And the very first one was Mary, who became the first herald of the resurrected Lord. She's the first to see Jesus. So today we're looking at this picture, though, of how Jesus takes those who were previously desperate, hostile to one another, and unites them. This is something that was unique and continues to be unique about what the Lord does among his people. This is what Philip Yancey says about and describes about the early church. He says, The earliest Christians broke down barriers. Unlike most other religions, Christians welcomed men and women alike. The Greeks excluded slaves and from most social groupings, while Christians included them. The Jewish temple separated worshipers by race and gender. Christians brought them together around the Lord's table. In contrast to Rome's mostly male aristocrats, the Christian church let women and the poor take leadership roles. The apostle 
Paul waxed eloquent on this mystery, which was for ages past kept hidden in God. God's intent, said Paul, was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. By forming a community out of diverse members, we have this opportunity, he writes, to capture the attention of the world and even the supernatural world beyond. Now, this morning we're going to spend, um, I'm going to be drawn really from two passages that are going to inform what we talk about. The first passage, it comes from Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 17. And this is what it says. For he, being Jesus, himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting it aside in his flesh, the, in his flesh, the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Lord, speak to us. Speak to us through this. And may we be conformed to the image of your Son, that we might be a people who respond to what it is that he has done and be a people who unite and draw people together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On the cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. <clears throat> it is finished. The work that his Father had sent him to do, and the New Testament spent so much time making sense of it is finished. And so we'll learn that the debt incurred by our sin has been paid through the cross. When he says it is finished, it's been paid. He has reconciled us to God. Satan has been defeated. Our sin no longer enslaves us. Death has lost its sting. It must let its grip on us go. And Paul will say in the passage this morning that Groups of people who were previously hostile and distant to each other have been united. They become family. He put to death their hostility. He undid the division and left it in the grave. He created a new humanity, a new family, united in Jesus and by Jesus. But Paul will also say in Galatians 3, and that's going to be our, sec our second passage, in Galatians 3, verses 26 to 28, Paul fleshes out this new I, this idea of God's new family. He says, So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, these lists that Paul includes here in verse 28, these were groups that were separated by the walls in the temple in the first century. But now, he says, all of you groups have actually been united in Christ Jesus. And each one of these groups, regardless of gender, whether you're a slave, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, you are all children of God. How does Jesus destroy these walls and unite these groups? I want to suggest through three things. Through his life, through his death, and through the Spirit. 
So let's look at this first one. Through his life, in Jesus' daily interactions, in his miracles, through his prayers, and those he discipled, we see how Jesus broke down barriers to, to unite these hostile groups into one new humanity. So let's talk about like race, like Jews or Gentiles. During the time of Jesus, the distinction between Jews and Gentiles was entrenched, and there was this open hostility between these two groups. Gentiles just meant anybody who wasn't Jewish. All the other nations. Gentiles were referred to as dogs. And Samaritans were considered half-breeds because they were Jews who had mixed in with the other nations around them. Even Gentile converts were unable to access the court of Israel in the temple. They could only go so far as the court of the Gentiles. But Jesus subverts the system of his day. He lived, he lived as a faithful Jew, but interacted with Samaritans and Gentiles. And perhaps one of the best pictures, even if you don't know your Bible very well, you actually know how Jesus started to do this. One of the best pictures, I think, comes from Luke 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because Jesus makes the Samaritan the most righteous one, the one who perfectly lives out God's law over and above a scribe, a Jewish scribe, Jewish priest, or Pharisee. And he says, go and be like the Samaritan. Go and be like the Samaritan. You'll see in his life that Jesus raises a Roman centurion, um, raises back to life a Roman centurion's uh, slave, um, that he, he praises him for their, uh, the centurion's faith, saying that he has more faith than anyone in Israel. And he actually heals their servant, not raises them. Sorry, that's in Luke 7. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman in John 4 who has married or lived with numerous men, and yet Jesus treats her with kindness, respect, and then he sends her out as an evangelist into her area. And of course, in Matthew 28, Jesus commissions his disciples to go out and make disciples of all of the Jews? No. Of all of the nations, he says. All the nations. Jesus broke down these racial divides in his culture in a radical way. He, in the way that he lived, in the way that he ministered, and even in the way that he sent out his disciples. He wanted them to do the same thing. And it took his disciples time to figure this out. Because if you read in Acts chapter 10... Pentecost has happened. The disciples have received the Holy Spirit, and they're trying to be faithful to what Jesus says. And Peter is resistant to going and, 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 um, and interacting with Gentiles because he doesn't want to be unclean. But through this divine act where the Lord gives him this crazy vision, he obeys. And then he sees Gentiles receive the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, when they respond to the gospel. And he says this in Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 35. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. <clears throat> Jesus also did this amongst classes, whether slave or free. In the first century, there was these class divides everywhere. In the Roman Empire, there was a strong sense of class between Romans and non-Romans, between free people and slaves. 
the ruling classes and the conquered peoples. Which is part of why Paul will refer to these different groups in Galatians 3. And Jewish society also had these, uh, these kinds of uh, divisions. <clears throat> there was cl- divisions between occupation, classes based uh, on occupation and health. Priests were held in high regard, but those who had physical disadvantages um, lived on the outskirts of the city. Tax collectors were ostracized in Jewish society as political traitors. They were symbols of Roman oppression, but they were accepted in the ruling Roman culture. And Jesus would break down these barriers by restoring the marginalized standing in society. He would heal the blind. He touched lepers, other unclean people that were considered ceremonially unclean, I should say. He healed those who were born with deformities and even stopped the decades of bleeding that made one woman ritually unclean. He healed Jews and Gentiles. And in healing the marginalized, he restored them to community. It wasn't just restoring their bodies. It wasn't just a physical healing. It was a social and spiritual healing. Many of these people who had these different illnesses were unclean and therefore could not interact with the rest of their community and could not worship in the temple. When Jesus healed them, they were able to once again interact and be part of a community and worship once again. In his parables, Jesus honored the poor and marginalized. And in his life, he never turned them away when they sought him out. But he didn't only just care for the poor and the marginalized. He also preached the gospel to the wealthy and the powerful. He called and invited tax collectors to follow him. He, had, he invited a rich young ruler to embrace the gospel. He spent time with and interacted with religious leaders like Nicodemus, who was part of the Sanhedrin. He preached to all of them. And among his own disciples, his 12 closest disciples, one of them was previously a tax collector. Levi, Matthew, he was a symbol of the unjust Roman occupation. As far as, other, uh, as far as some of the other disciples, they would have seen him as a political traitor. Yet Jesus says to him, hey, come and follow me. And at the same time, Jesus will also call another disciple, Simon the Zealot. And we don't know for sure why he was called a zealot. There could be a few different reasons, but it's very possible he was a zealot in the political sense. And zealots were bent on leading a revolution against the Romans. They longed for a Messiah who would come and violently overthrow Rome. Jesus says to Simon the Zealot, come and follow me. And so even with his closest disciples, you see these two people who are on polar opposite ends being brought together. Jesus also did this amongst genders as well. By the first century, there was this clear division and hierarchy between genders. But Paul is claiming that Jesus overcomes this. The first miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John comes at the request of a woman, his mother, Mary. We're not told that Jesus intended to perform this miracle. Mary asked him to do it. He honored her request and turned water into wine. In fact, if you read the Gospels, you'll notice that it is often women who are prompting Jesus to act perform a miracle, to move. Jesus invited women to be his disciples, and to us, 
it's not a, not a very big deal. But in the first century, it was. Males were disciples of their rabbis. Women could not be. Yet we see in Luke chapter 10, Mary sits, Mary Magdalene sits at the feet of Jesus and listens to his teaching. <clears throat> this was the posture of a male disciple. Martha, Mary's sister, sees Mary sitting before Jesus and gets upset. She wants him to come, her to come and help her. And she wants Jesus to correct her. And Jesus refuses to correct her. He says, Mary has chosen the better thing. Jesus welcomed and invited women to be his disciples. From the cross, Jesus ensures that his widowed mom, Mary, is cared for. And Mary Magdalene and the other uh, disciples are the first disciples to witness the empty tomb, and Mary will be the first of any of the disciples to see Jesus alive again. It, le it led church fathers to call her the apostle to the apostles. I've got this itch in my throat, and it's making me just go like, oh, and I drank all my water. I think I might need a hero to help me out, because I've got to make it, guys. Pray for me. All right, so Dorothy Sayers, she wrote this book called Are Women Human? And she writes this, uh, this beautiful picture of who Jesus was and how he treated women. He says, perhaps it is no wonder that women were the first at the cradle and the last at the, of the cross, at the cross that should read. They had never known a man like this man. There never has been another, a prophet and teacher who never nagged them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made sick jokes about women, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took women's questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out a certain sphere for women, who never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took women as he found them and was completely un. Uh, unselfconscious. There, there is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole of the gospel that borrows its points or pugnancy from male perversity. Nobody could get from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny or inferior about women. Jesus subverted the racial system. He broke down the barriers of dividing classes, and he deflated the male hierarchy of his day. Why? It's because Jesus treats everyone he, he meets exactly as God intended. Image bearers and potential daughters and sons of the king. <coughs> he invites all to become his disciples and bear... Thanks, Ian. Thank you, Ian. He invites all to become his disciples, to bear his image exercise his influence and to bring the good news of his kingdom to the ends of the earth. So he destroyed the barrier, the hostility that existed between people through his life, but he also did it through his death. And that's what Paul will talk about in Ephesians 2, that Jesus puts to death our enmity, our pride, our segregation. He wants everybody to know how expansive Jesus' triumph is on the cross. And humanity, broken humanity, is, oh my goodness, look at this. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you, thank you, thank you. I think I also owe thank you to Andy, because Andy probably hopped up to do the same. That's why there's two cups here. So thank you both of you guys. Um, Paul wants everybody to know how expansive Jesus' triumph is. Not only did he put, not only did Jesus go and put death and sin and leave it in the grave, he does the same with our hostilities as well. Broken humanity is divided. You and I know it. We don't really need to read the news. We just got to look at our own relationships, our workplaces, our families to see division, to see hostility. It's not just between nations or ethnic groups or genders or classes. It's interpersonal. And one of the ways to think through hostility is this um, simple equation of fear plus power. Hostility equals fear plus power. Hostility is wrongly directed, executed power. And hostility breeds division. It comes out when in our broken state, we attempt to be like God. We try to rule and control all of our relationships as if we are the highest authority. As if our happiness is the end goal of all of life. And when we don't have control... When it doesn't go our way, when others resist us, we can feel threatened, undermined, and we push back, clasping for more. We feel this all the time. Sometimes it's us doing it. Other times it's people doing it with us. This is hostility that can be there between you and your boss, your work situation, your family members, your kids, your wife, your husband, your neighbor, Friends who see the world differently than you and post about it. You even feel this towards the people who walk slower than you or drive slower than you. You feel it. You, maybe you feel towards the people who drive faster than you, right? It's there when you're pointing out the failures and character defects of others to someone else. It's there in that part of you that feels very insecure our fear and pursuit for the wrong kind of power pushes us to have this kind of us versus them mindset. Me versus them mindset. It was like that then in the first century as Jesus did his ministry. And it's like that today. But here's what you know, need to know. Paul wants us to know. What Jesus wants us to know is that because of Christ, it no longer has to be that way. Because of Christ, it no longer has to be that way. Jesus destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. There were these four courts in the temple. And if you start from the farthest out, it was the court of the Gentiles. Then there was the court of women. Then there was, um, what was the other court that we had here? The court of the priests. And then... It was the most holy of holies. And only one uh, person, the high priest, could go in there only once a year. And they had this rope tied around him. And the, and the reason was because they thought that if he died in the presence of God, at least they could pull him out and not have to sacrifice somebody else. Gentiles could only hang out in the court of the Gentiles. It didn't matter if they had converted. It's the only place they could come in. There were signs warning them that if they went farther than this, they would be killed. Women who were Jewish could not go any farther than the court of women. But something happens when Jesus dies. 
when Jesus goes to the cross, when he declared it is finished, we're told in the Gospels that the veil in the temple was torn. That veil separating the most holy of holies from all the other courts was torn. Jesus put the hostility, your hostility, my hostility, all of the hostilities between the nations, between groups, between you and others, to death. It is dead in Christ. All of our attempts to play God. Jesus puts our fears and our wrongly executed attempts to exert power over others to death by taking it with him to the grave. How does Jesus deal with all of the division and hostility among humanity and then unite a new humanity? He takes it with him to the cross. Some of you might know of this American poet. Her name is Amanda Gorman. She wrote a powerful poem a couple of days ago in response to the horrific and evil shooting that took place in Texas at that elementary school. It's titled, A Hymn for the Hurting. And if you haven't read it, just Google it. It's, it's beautiful and powerful. Midway through it, though, she wrote something that really stood out to me. While hate cannot be terminated, it can be transformed into a love that lets us live. May we not just grieve, but give. May we not just ache, but act. It struck me as I read that, that I've seen this done before. What she's describing, I've seen it done before. I've seen someone do what Amanda's inviting her nation to do. I'm not sure about her beliefs, how she sees the world, but I, when I read that the second time, I, I read it almost prophetically. There was a call for something more. Because as I read it, I think to myself, Lord, that's what I've seen you do in the cross. That Jesus takes hatred, what is meant for evil, division, death, and transforms that into a love that lets us live. The cross was not something pretty and beautiful. The cross was a tool for execution. It was the first, days, first century's version of the electrical chair. It wasn't something people looked at and were like, wow, that's like a really beautiful symbol. Jesus made it a beautiful symbol. Jesus took what was meant for evil. He took the hatred, the hostility that was directed towards him and all of the hostility that we have towards us, and he transformed it into a love that let us live. His death wiped out the division between us and God and between us and one another. Jesus died so that you and I may reap what he had sown. He rose so that you might be a new creation, God's new humanity. In love, Jesus was sowing forgiveness. Forgiveness for all of our terrible and pathetic attempts to play God. His forgiveness gave you access to God's presence, and in his presence, freedom, healing, new life, and reconciliation. The third way that Jesus unites us is through the Holy Spirit. Pentecost Sunday is a wonderful thing to look back at and celebrate. See, Jesus tells his disciples it is 
better for you that I go. If I don't go, the helper cannot come. The helper, the Holy Spirit cannot come. When Jesus ascends, as the church celebrated on Thursday, he sits at the right hand of the Father. It means that Jesus has all authority. The authority he talked about, all authority on heaven and on earth is his. His authority is equal to the Father. And on our Pentecost Sunday, Jesus sends the Spirit. And in that, in that moment, it goes from Jesus' ministry being confined to where he physically is to being spread throughout the world to wherever his people are. His, the Holy Spirit comes and makes his home among his people and dwells in his disciples. And he gives his people power. He gives his people power. And on Pentecost Sunday, we're told that there were all these different people. They were Jews, but they spoke different languages because they, they lived in different parts of the Roman Empire and had come to celebrate this festival on Pentecost. And if you count all the different groups that are present there in Acts 2, there's 15 distinct language groups that hear the gospel in their language. They don't hear it in one language. They don't just hear it in Aramaic. They don't just hear it in Hebrew. They hear it in different languages. And how that happens is the Holy Spirit enables the disciples and Peter to proclaim the gospel and somehow speak languages that these people understand, their heart language. This is important. Because it's not just you're hearing it in one language and that's the only way you can ever hear the gospel. You will hear the good news in your heart language. And the Holy Spirit is the one that enables them, that wants them to do this. The gospel came through the Jews, but it was for all nations. And that day, 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus And in Acts 10, we see that it isn't just Jews who receive the gospel, but Gentiles too, and Cornelius and all of his family. The Spirit falls on Gentiles just like the Spirit fell on Jews. And this is so important for us to recognize. We don't have a different spirit as Christians. We have one spirit, the Holy Spirit, that each Christian is given. The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now lives and dwells in every believer. There's one spirit, and that spirit unites all of us as one family, as God's new humanity. And so the way that Jesus breaks down the barriers and unites this new humanity is through his life, through his death, and by sending the Holy Spirit. But you and I might hear that and be like, well, thank you, Jesus, for doing that. And I love that, and my heart rejoices in that. But how can I possibly live in light of that? How do I live as a new humanity when the world is so divided and I feel its pull, that tendency to actually live divided? How do we live as the people that God intended? I want to suggest it's easier than you think, and it's also harder than you think. It's easier and it's harder. I want to just offer just a few things for us to think about, some, some implications in light of what Christ has done. First is, I think we need to recognize the truth. We need to recognize what he's actually done. If you don't know it, if you refuse to recognize it, how can you live into it? You need to recognize it. Recognize that in Christ, we've already been joined together. 
We're not creating this unity. He created it. In Christ, God has already united us. We live in a culture that divides, and we have sin patterns and biases that seek to separate and fragment us. This means that we live in a tension. We live in the tension of already being joined together, and yet in the reality of not yet fully practicing this joint unity. There's both. Listen to what Paul will write in Ephesians 4.3. He says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. If you have a different translation like the ESV, it'll say, Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We don't need to create this unity. It's already been created in Christ. That is beautiful news. You don't have to strive to create this unity. He has done it. And the Spirit has united us as one body. We are reconciled to God and to each other. We are the body of Christ. All nations who put their trust, every ethnicity, every different group who puts their trust in Jesus are part of this body. Because there's only one Spirit in Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit. And as Christians, we all experience the same spirit at work in our lives. The command is to be eager to maintain the unity, to spare no effort to maintain the unity. So I would just ask, do you recognize this truth? One of the ways you can think through this is understanding and believing that what hurts one member will hurt all of us because we are part of one body. That we're not just these individuals who can do whatever we want, think whatever we want, act however we want. We impact one another through our words, through our actions. Secondly, I think we need to understand and see that you really are a child of God. And you're a child of God first. That's what Paul hits on in Galatians 3. You're a child of God. You're a child of God first, disciple of Jesus, then Then you have these other identifiers. Male, female, you're you're a painter, you're a graphic designer, you're an accountant. Maybe you come from a different class. All those things are, are part of who you are, but the overwhelming and defining thing about who you are is that you are a child of God. That needs to go above all others. And believe it or not, I know that in one sense this might seem counterintuitive, but... The truth of what God has done through Jesus must first be internalized in you. Before you want to see that change, that that push for unity, that change needs to happen within you. You know you're embracing this new identity when you're increasingly rejecting the sinful tendency to want to be God, to make and call all the shots. You resist the hostile instincts towards others. You know it when you're living in confidence that God, our Father, will care for your needs. That you don't have to be threatened by someone else. The Lord knows what you need, and he can take care of you. So you are first and foremost a beloved and holy and called and cherished child of God. You're a citizen of God's kingdom, and you have his authority to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And this is not a loss of your previous identities, whether you're male, female, 
or your class. It's just that they all pale in comparison to Christ. This means that I am still from Honduras. I still have that. I don't lose that. I'm still male, but over and above all of that, everything else, I'm a child of God. Your habits, similarly, they don't define you. Your failures, they don't define you. What you're for or what you're against do not define you. How much you make, how much you know are not the things that are most important about you. The most important thing about you, the overarching and defining thing about you is that you're God's child. You're his kid. And good parents cannot help but talk about their kids. And it's almost annoying if you don't have kids. Because you just hear them talk about them so much, even when they're not around. But parents just can't help it. They love them so much, it just spills out. Those of you who are grandparents, you know the same thing. It's like you just can't help but talk about your grandkids. That's God's heart for you. You're a child of God, and his heart rejoices. He cannot help but look forward to seeing you, to have you in his presence. And connected to this, we need to actually see that other believers are also children of God. First and foremost. Then as members of whatever socially defined group they may be from. And when you recognize that they are, it will lead you to new levels of love and commitment and sacrifice for one another. They're your sibling. Siblings aren't exactly the same, but you love them. You fight for them. You go to bat for them. You want to honor and love them because you see how much God loves and cares for them. And it feels wrong to disrupt, to diminish them, to break the peace that God has created. So this means for us, for the church in general, it means respecting how people are different than you. Culturally, ethnically, socially, how they see things. we got to learn to listen. I was thinking about how when you have a church that has people from different countries, different experiences, how people communicate in other cultures is different. Some communicate directly, some communicate indirectly. And part of being a church that has different uh, people from different nations is learning to understand that we're going to communicate differently. Sometimes it's harder to put together. And James will write, in, in James 1.19, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Part of recognizing that other believers are also children of God is that we are going to be people who are quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to become angry. The third and last thing I think is that we must recognize what we have in Christ is greater than anything that could separate. That what we have in Christ is greater than anything that could separate. We all have differences. We all do. But we need to put them in their proper perspective. What unites us is Jesus Christ. And the one th- this is the one thing that we cannot lose sight of, is this unity that he has given us. There's nothing more important than what we have in common in Jesus Christ. Daryl Johnson, he'll put it like this. He says, what binds us together in the re- new reality is infinitely greater than anything else that threatens to divide us. And doesn't it feel like there's so many things that could threaten to divide us? We have Jesus Christ in common. If you have Jesus Christ in common, what in the world is so important that it would separate us? 
What's more important than having Jesus Christ in common? What we have in common with one another in Christ outweighs everything else. And you just go through the list of things that could cause us to feel like it threatens to divide us. Politically, whether you lean left or right, whether you reject the whole system, if you have Christ, you have far more, infinitely more, immeasurably more in common than all that could separate you. If you hated the restrictions, if you tolerated them, if you fully supported them, but you have Christ in common, you have far more in common than anything else that could separate you. What we have in Christ unites us. You can be different ethnicity, you could have, speak a different language, come from wealth or no wealth, you name it. What unites us is Jesus Christ. He tore down the division and created a new humanity, one that is so transformed by his love that they begin to imitate him, living humbly, bearing with one another in love. That's actually one of the reasons why Sundays matter because it's this visible picture of the unity that God has created. It's his people coming together. And one of the ways that we visibly de- 